Six hour had come. The six hours noon. When the six hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Now turn over to chapter 16. This is the third day. This is Sunday morning. The crucifixion was either on a Thursday or a Friday. Folks disagree. It really doesn't matter which one it was. But this is Sunday morning. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And when they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. 
So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Amen. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would do that good and perfect work in our hearts today. Lord, we, we don't come just to learn something new about the Bible. We come to encounter you. That's why we're here. We need you, Lord. I pray for anybody in this room, man, woman, or child, who's standing here right now or in this room, and they are not aware of their need for you. Lord, would you change all that? Would you just change it all, please, Lord? Would you strike all of us so that we understand we need you and you are so willing to give yourself? Lord, I pray that I would not be a hindrance to you doing what you want to do in each of us this morning. Please speak now to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. In this book, the book of Mark, in chapter 8, about six months before he was crucified, six months before he was crucified, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he would be killed, but after three days, he would rise from the dead. You know, we, 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 we spent a lot of time teaching about Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed blessed. Um, are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We teach a lot about the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught a lot about the fact that he was going to die, and after three days, or on the third day, he would rise from the dead. So in Mark chapter 8, six months before he was crucified, it says this, and we spent a lot of time at the time, way back when, when we were in Mark chapter 8, spent a lot of time on these verse, this verse right here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is the first time he taught them six months before he died and rose again. He taught them I'm going to die, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. Now, the next chapter, Mark chapter 8, at the beginning of the uh, chapter, Peter takes, rather, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And on top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. Uh, meaning Jesus appeared to them as he is in heaven. Mark says that his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. light. And Peter, James, and John, it says they were terrified. 
and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him or listen to him. And, and then suddenly Jesus was transfigured back. He, he, he appeared again as a man, like a man as he was on earth. And it says at that time, it says this in Mark chapter nine, it says, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. And so after that, the next verse says this, so they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. See, they don't have the benefit of us. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't know that he was going to, we, we, we take it for granted. If Jesus rose from the dead, they're like, what do you mean rise from the dead? Next chapter, chapter uh, 10, or rather later on in chapter 9, Jesus again, this with all his disciples, says the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. And then um, yet again in the next chapter, in chapter 10, it says this. He gets more descriptive. He said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit upon him, kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So Calvary Chapel, listen up here. This is a big deal. After Jesus Christ rose from the dead for the rest of the Bible, for the rest of the New Testament, nonstop we read about the resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead. This over and over again. Right until the very last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation, but really, even before he was crucified, uh, six months before, it says he began to talk about it, and you do get the sense, we've gotten the sense in the book of Mark, that it was more or less the same thing. It, he, he's bringing it up to his disciples many times. I'm going to be killed, but after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then here we are in Mark 16. Here we are, the resurrection. Let's go back um, into a few of these verses. It says again in verse 2, it says very early in the morning. Just join me again with your Bibles. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw that this stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Verse 5, again, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. The last verse of the previous chapter said the woman had seen where they had laid Jesus in a tomb. And now the angel's saying, look, he's not there anymore. So Jesus rising from the dead. 
the resurrection. I will say this about the resurrection. It's not just that the resurrection is important to Christianity. And by the way, I, I, when churches stop teaching about the resurrection, they just die within a few generations. And many have done that. It started here in Massachusetts, by the way, 250 years ago. Churches started, yeah, we didn't really rise from the dead. Those churches just died. I grew up in one of those churches, dead. A church that taught things like that. But it's not just that the resurrection is important to Christianity. The resurrection is Christianity. That's what it is. It's what makes Christianity different than any other religion or human philosophy. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Listen carefully. I, I can't possibly overemphasize this. Christianity is not supremely about you reading about Jesus and imitating him. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Jesus living through you. And let me tell you, that's all the difference in the world right there. Because every other religion in the world, let's study Confucius and then we're going to meticulously follow that life. We'll study Muhammad, we'll meticulously follow that life. We'll, we'll, we'll study Buddha and, and we will imitate that life. We'll, we'll study one of hundreds of, of, of Hindu uh, uh, gurus and we will imitate that life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus Christ living through you. And that's all the difference in the world. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I, I mean, there's a zillion verses, but here, here you're not going to see anything about imitation in these verses. You, might, you, you may see it from time to time. The word imitate, Christ in the New Testament, but it's only so, uh, so that you by faith can allow him to live through you. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Next verse, John 15.4, abide in me and I in you. That means live in me and I in you. This is Jesus speaking. Live in me and I in you. You're not imitating Jesus. You're allowing him to live through you. You study his life so you understand how you're supposed to, how he wants to live through you. Not so you can, is, is supremely, not as much so you can imitate him. Next verse, John 14, 20. This is Jesus speaking. At that day, this is after, meaning when I'm resurrected and I ascended into heaven, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. The resurrection is Christianity. It's not just an important thing. It's what it is. Next verse. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Just allow these words to, to just be asked to you. Just as if they're being asked to you right now. Which is, by the way, when we read the Bible, how we're supposed to read it. It's, it, 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 the questions that come out of the Bible, they're supposed to come right to our hearts. Do you not know, Calvary Chapel, yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? You don't read that in Buddhism. You don't read that in Islam. You don't read that in any human philosophy. You don't read that in pantheistic Eastern religions. You do not read that. 
that a God separate from creation who created the world now lives in his followers who have asked him to come in. Next verse. Colossians chapter 127 says this, Christ in you, he's the hope of your glory. He's the hope of glory. It's not winning some trophy after an athletic event. It's the glory of being with Christ. It's, it, he's the hope of glory. Do we have another one? John 3.20 says this, behold, I, uh, rather this is Revelation, <laughs> written by John, sorry. Little mistake there, that's my fault. Revelation 3.20 says, behold, this is Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I will come into him. What has to happen for that to, for that to occur? Just opening up the door of your heart and saying, come in, Jesus. Of course, when you ask him to come in, it's not like, and I'm going to keep this little idol of sexual immorality in my life, or I'm going to keep this, uh, th th this, this, this drug use in my life, or I'm going to keep this greed in my life. No, I, I, I'm done with all that. I, with your power, I'll get rid of them, but come in. I, you're all I want. He comes in, and he's there forever the Bible says. And so this life that you have, again, is not about studying the life of a man who lived 2,000 years ago and just trying to imitate it. It's about Jesus Christ living through you. That is what gives your life supernatural power. Listen. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It's a supernatural religion. Never forget that. And it's really hard to learn. Especially if you're one of those people, like I was when I became a Christian in my early 20s, I was a real hard worker. I, I, I was very disciplined at, at getting what I wanted in school or whatever else. I, and, and boy, when I came into in, to become a Christian, that's how I thought you get things done. It's, it's takes a long time to figure out. It's not how you get things done. You get things done by, by just putting all your gifts, talents before the Lord and say, okay, I get it. You're not going to be able to do your will through me. Now you live through me. That's, a, that's how we grow. That's how, we, that's how um, the Lord uses us. It's, Christianity is not a willpower religion. It's a supernatural religion. Again, Galatians 2.20 says this, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's because of the resurrection. We're not just imitating a guy and studying him and figuring out you know, what, 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 what we should do next. And, and, and just so you understand the fullness of what that means, what does it mean that Christ lives in me? Uh, what, what, just, I love the description in the book of Hebrews of how Jesus himself lives in you. Jesus himself lives in you, Hebrews 7.16 says, by the power of an indestructible life. Are you reading that? That is amazing. You, you have the, the power of the indestructible life living in you. 
And that is why over time, um, uh, after someone comes into the body of Christ with all their issues, with all their damage, with all their baggage, over time, it says they become a new man, a new woman. doesn't happen overnight. It's what the Bible calls the process of sanctification as we learn to be less of ourselves and more of Christ who lives in us. The resurrection is not only important, it is Christianity. Christianity. It's, Christian, it's no longer, I speak to you, it's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. And by the way, that means the power of an indestructible life. And that means you can get on your knees every morning. And get on your knees every morning. My recommendation is to roll out of bed and get on your knees and, and cry out to the Lord saying, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please. I need you to live through me today. So practically speaking, what does that life look like? What does that life look like? Practically speaking. Well, for one, again, you're not studying Jesus' life and then trying to imitate and write down in, in the most exacting detail how you're supposed to respond in every situation. Having Jesus live, um, live through you means a life full of freedom, joy, and spontaneity. What does that mean? What's spontaneity? What does that mean? What do I mean by that? It means... It means this, among other things, on three different days, because you have Christ living in you, and there's not a rule book for every day, well, I'm gonna, I have this rule book of how I'm going to be, no, no, it, it means you may encounter on three, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the exact same situation three times, but each time Christ living in you may want you to respond in completely different ways. You're, you're going to, uh, to work or whatever uh, on your bike and someone wipes out on their bike right in front of you and it's a Monday. So you get off your bike and, 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 and important, such important advice. Anytime you're in that situation, just be mumbling under your, your breath. Okay, God, what do, you want, what do you want me to do? What, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do here? Please, God. So on, but on Monday, you're doing that. You jump off and you help them and grab them by the hand and ask them, hey, can I pray for you? You, you really do do things like that, you know. Even in a city which doesn't believe God, you, you do do things like that. Because God's got, just got, you know, the Lord is, is get, uses you in that way. But on a Tuesday, the same thing happens. You jump off your bike and you help them and, and you walk with them the rest of the way to work. The, the day before, you, you let them go their way. On, on Wednesday, the same thing happens. You're like, this is really weird. Three days in a row, someone wiped out right in front of me. I wonder if it's me. I don't, but no, you get off your bike and, and, and you say, do you know that God loves you? You know, but I think he's trying to get your attention. If you're told that to the person the day before, they may have slapped you in the face. But, but today, the, the Lord is saying, no, you gotta be real direct with this person. It's a life of freedom, spontaneity, and joy, not lived by rule books. Rules kill. The Bible says that the letter rules kill, but the Spirit gives life. 
Religion that kills, we get up every day and we think we need to live the exact same way every day. That's not Christ living in you. That's religion. That's not what God saved you into. What else? What else does a life look like? What else does a life look like when Jesus is living through you? Help me out. What does it look like? Anyone? Hmm. Wow, I'm halfway through the sermon. This is my first question. What, what, what does a life look like when Christ is, what does your life look like when Christ is living through you? Be careful. I'm going to start calling on people. That would be really mean. But hey, you know, every time you encounter a situation, the Lord wants you to do something different. What does it look like? Abundant. It's abundant. That's good. I like that. What else? Eldon. Suffering with joy. Really good. Not getting your own way. Excellent. Outstanding. Dying to yourself. Mike. Oh, Stephanie, he got it. <laughs> Loving others. When Christ is living in you, you love others. We don't get it, man, woman. We don't get it in ourselves. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? What did he say? Actually, what it said was, what is the first commandment? Meaning, what is all of life about? What did he say in Matthew, um, rather Mark chapter 12? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and then because we have such short memories, it repeats it again in verse 16. God is love. When Christ is living through you, all those answers were outstanding. They really were. But God is love. You're going to start to manifest love. Not wooden kind of rule-making, rule-following. It's love. And I got to tell you, Mark chapter 16, where Jesus has risen from the dead, is a good example of any of what his love looks like. Let's read it again. Mark chapter 5, 16, verse 5. It says, and, and, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So the first thing that Jesus makes sure is told to these women who show up at the tomb is he said, the first thing they, they're told is he's, he's not here, he's risen. He's, he's alive, is the first thing. But the very next thing is, go tell the disciples what's happened. Why is that important? Why is that significant? 
Well, what were they doing at that moment? Verse 10, let's read it together. When she went and told those who had been with him, it says, it says, as they mourned and wept. In other words, when he said to the Marys and Salome who had shown up at the tomb, go and tell, uh, had the angel say, go and tell the disciples, they were mourning and weeping. Now it's been two or three days. They're still mourning and weeping and it's the early morning. They've, they went to bed morning and they got up morning. They're weeping. Why? All their hope was tied up in Jesus. Now usually when your hope is tied up in anything, it's a bad thing because <laughs> you lose it and your life is crushed and, and you're hopeless. This happened to be the right thing, except they don't know what's going on. All their hope is tied up in Jesus. Their hope is shattered. Their joy, their future, their plans, their life had all been wrapped up in this man, Jesus. Now that life was destroyed. They saw that it was destroyed. And so was their hope. Their hope had been destroyed. And so they're weeping. But it was not only the fact that they believed from Jesus' very lips. He said, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And that hope is now shattered and it's gone. It's not only that, it's how he died. Now, we discussed this last week. If you weren't here, you may want to listen to the message. But, but it was the most shameful death. Imagine the person, your son, your daughter, whoever, and, and them dying like Jesus died, naked, no loincloth, naked with hundreds of people passing by. We read that last week. We, I, I, I referred to a, a, a Roman uh, scholar or writer at the time. He said, yeah, we look for who, where to crucify people where the most people will be walking. We know that it was on a road because in Matthew it says, as people walked by, they wagged their heads at him and mocked him. And, and that's how he died, the most shameful death. But not only that, it was their behavior. Why are they mourning and weeping? It was their behavior towards him in the last moments of his life. And we saw that just a couple hours before he was arrested and taken away at the Last Supper. Jesus had told them, he said, all of you are going to forsake me. And at that time, they broke into an argument. No, I, we are not going to forsake you. And then one, you know, Peter gets up and he says, even if everybody else forsakes you, I will not. Now imagine that's really your last conversation with him and he goes off and he's crucified. I mean, you, you've heard many stories. Some of you may be able to relate to this. You get into an argument with your mother or father and, and that's the last time they die or a cousin, or a brother, or an aunt, or whatever, and then they die, and you can't take it back. That's where these guys were. That's why they're mourning. That is why they're weeping. And, and, and so uh, it, it's interesting here, again, that he says Peter's name. He, he, he says Peter's name. It says here, it says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, in Matthew, Luke, and John, it doesn't say anything about that. And, and, and the reason probably is is because everyone forgot it except Peter, and Peter was the one who dictated this 
letter to Mark. In the book of Peter, it's called, he calls Mark his son. And, and so can you imagine being Peter? And someone comes into the room and, 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 and says, listen, he told me to tell you, and Peter, you especially, he's alive. And he knows that Peter's mourning. He knows that Peter is, is, is weeping. Jesus Christ is drawn to the weeping, depressed, discouraged sinner. He's drawn to them. The natural human reaction often with us is when we see whatever, someone making a big scene, crying or whatever, we feel bad, but it's like, man, I don't want to get into that mess. Not so with Jesus Christ. He is drawn to the weeping, depressed, discouraged, ashamed. Because there's a lot of shame in those tears. Sinner. It breaks his heart. In John chapter 11, it says that when Jesus saw the weeping over Lazarus' death, he groaned deeply, describing actually a physical pain. He wept himself. That's, that's what love looks like. Again, we're talking about what does it look like to have love living through you? This is what love looks like. Jesus knows their suffering. He knows their suffering. And so among the first thing that he says is, go stop the suffering. He's, he's drawn to your pain. When you are in sorrow, when you are in shame, he's drawn to you. And, and if you're here today, and you know full well that in the last few days, you've done some things that you know, you know other people in this room have not done. You're in here. I know you're in here. I was, I was you one time, sitting in a church, living the life of a hypocrite. I was there. To you, Jesus singles you out the most. He says, tell, tell his disciples and Peter. Now we know Peter. He had more shame on him than all of the others combined. He said, hey, even if everyone else falls away, you, you, know, you know me, you guys know me. I'm not going to fall away. Jesus said, oh really, Peter, before the, the, the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And he did. And all it took was a little servant girl to make him deny Jesus. And on the third time, it says that when, when they came to him, they said, your, your, your accent gives you away. You're with Jesus. It says that he began to curse and swear, crying out, I do not know the man. Cursing. I swear to God, I do not know that man. And what's Jesus doing now? Go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm alive. Name them by name. So if you're that person today, he's singling you out. He loves you. That's what love looks like. We don't love like that unless Christ is loving through us. It says again in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, 
And that's just amazing to me. He singles Peter out. <laughs> that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. Jesus is love, and this is what love looks like. Jesus wants to see them. He wants to be with them. The Bible does say all of them forsook him and fled. Can we have that verse, Caio? I think it skipped over. It does say every single one of them. Then all his disciples forsook him and fled. Right after saying they would never do that. What does love look like? I don't know. I can't think of I can think of a lot of people I'd rather be around than them. No. Go to Galilee and you'll see him there. And he's gonna go before you. He's gonna go before you. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Speaking of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Jesus says the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what you should be doing with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, seeking the presence of the Lord. See, what's going on here? He's, he's, go to Galilee, and, and he's going to go before you, and there you'll see him. Be, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And it's interesting, it's so interesting here in, in the book of Mark, notice how it says when they heard, verse 11, that he was alive, alive they did, they, and had been seen by her, they didn't believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them in the country, verse 12 and, and verse 13, and, and they went and told it to them, but they didn't believe them either. And so what does he do? These guys are not going to believe. I guess I just have to show up. And that's what he does. Why? Because in verse, uh, verse 14, again, he that later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. Apparently, there, it was, he had told them, listen, I'm going to Galilee, which is in northern Israel. Go there and I'll meet you there. But th they didn't believe what was being said. Well, I just got to be with them now. God wants to be with you. When you are in so sorrow and shame and guilt and guilt and guilt, Jesus is drawn to you. He wants to be with you and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means you're seeking the presence of the Lord. You want to know what God's attitude towards you is? If you are one of those people who have opened up your heart and said, please, Jesus, come in. Be my Lord and Savior. This is his attitude towards you. This is from the Song of Solomon. I quoted it on Friday night. Oh, my dove. Speaking of you, this is Jesus Christ speaking of you. He calls you a dove. If you're a guy, you're probably a little nervous about that. Get used to it. That's how Jesus loves you. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock. You see, that's what shame does that's what guilt does that's what apathy does that's what idolatry is when we are idolizing our job and we're going to our job every every day we're waking up so early and working so late we're it's our idol we're we're in a we're in the cleft of the rock we're not with him so my dove in the clefts of the rock in the secret place of the cliff let me see your face let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face 
is lovely. That's how God sees you. That's how God wants you. You know, I, um, I, let me close with this. I tell you, without the presence of the Lord, I would have ditched this Christian thing years ago, decades ago, actually. I would have ditched it. And this past week, I, I, I was just praying to the Lord. I, I was like, wow, Lord, thank you so much. And I was thanking him because, and I, I, I honestly, I just say this with all humility. Don't take this the wrong way. I have as much zeal and joy teaching and living for the word of God than I did 30 years ago. And I was just thanking the Lord for that. Because I got to tell you, I am a person who gets bored really easily. <laughs> and, it's, and I blame it on my father, by the way, because by the time I left my home, I had already li- gone to like four, to four or five different countries. My dad did wacky, crazy things with my two brothers and I. I mean, when there was, uh, down on Cape Cod, when there was a, 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 a storm, a, a a small craft warning storm. You go, okay, guys, time to go out in the boat. Time to go out in the sailboat. And, I, and, 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 and honestly, he did. And we would go out there and we would be clobbered in the waves. And he's just like, you know, in the sailboat. Yeah. Like it was normal. When, we, when I moved to South America, we didn't live where everyone else lived. We lived outside of the city and he would take us on these dirt roads and my brother Mark and I would say, this is crazy. We would get off the Jeep and run behind it because I'm telling you, there was a 500 foot cliff right to our right. No guardrail. This is my dad. I went to the, down into the Amazon when I was 17 with my friend Pete and, and uh, my brother Mark. And we get up, we, we're approaching in a six-seater airplane, this little six-seater, and the runway was grass and it was curved. It was not straight. It went like this. The plane is supposed to turn. This was, and, and so by the time I left my home, I, I, I had done a lot of things. And it took a lot, of th- a lot to like, wow, this is like a new cool thing. I would get, start getting bored really easily. I mean, you guys know what it's like, right? You're into a sport for a while. You're really into it. It gets old. You're into a TV show. It gets old. Some dance. It gets old. Some uh, uh, travel, whatever. It gets old. Some kind of book or music. It gets old. Everything gets old. Especially, you know, when you're pushing 60 years old like me. So how is it that a person can have more or the same zeal and joy serving the Lord today as he did when he was a Christian 35 years ago? How how is that even possible? The presence of the Lord. It never gets old. It never, ever does. In John John chapter 4, Jesus actually answers the question. Jesus answered and said to her, to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever tries out this sex thing, this pleasure thing, this entertainment thing, this social media, that they will thirst again. (laughs) This this job thing, this career thing, they they will thirst again. This power thing, this even having a family, a family will get old. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's 
what the presence of the Lord is like. It never runs dry. What does love look like? Jesus Christ loving through you? It looks like this. He, he wants actually to be with you. He, it says, we just read it. He goes before you. The question is, are you going to show up? Love looks, when Jesus is living through you, when the Holy Spirit is living through you, you're, you're seeking his presence. You're seeking the presence of the Lord. And I can tell you, it never gets old. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this time. Again, Jesus says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. There you will see him. There you will see him. Why don't you stand now as we close in worship? If you've been asked to pray, a prayer couple, a prayer, uh, if you've been asked to be one of the people who comes up front and pray, please come up now. So we're going to sing a worship song, and if you're here listening to, to the words, uh, and the Lord has been doing something to your heart, it's, the Lord's been doing something to my heart today, I've got to tell you that. And you just want someone to pray, maybe you're that person, yeah, that's me. Uh, I've done some stuff in the last few weeks that I know very few people in this room and I'm looking at them and thinking God's more interested in them than me. Uh, no, you're wrong. Jesus said, tell the disciples and Peter. No, he's, he's specifically, mostly, distinctly drawn to you. Come up and pray about it. Come up and, and, and if, you don't, if you don't get it, if you're not feeling it, we'll pray for you. We'll help you in that way. Or if you just want, if you want that, to experience that promise that Jesus gave in John chapter 4 to the women, to the woman at the well, once I give you this water, you'll never thirst again. Maybe you've never been baptized. We have a baptism today at Seven Hill Beach at 1.30 p.m. <laughs> it's high tide there. Last time I made a mistake and it was low tide when we got there. We baptized in mud practically. But, um, but if you've never been baptized and you'd like to get baptized today, hey, listen, <laughs> you can get baptized today. The Bible says when people in the first sermon that was ever given, it was in the book of Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter said to a crowd, he said, you guys crucified Jesus. He might as well have just said it to us here. You guys crucified Jesus. Why do I say that? Because your sin crucified Jesus. Your sin, my sin crucified Jesus. And, and they responded by saying, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. If you've never done that, come up and, and talk with us at this time. Otherwise, let's all worship together. Father, we just thank you for this time, Lord. Continue this, this wonderful work, Lord, that you've been doing among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.